to the fifth episode of American History 2. We're back uh, after an extended break where we decided to honour the American tradition of, you know, disappearing over Thanksgiving. Uh, this had nothing to do with the substantial marking that both myself and Malcolm were buried under. And uh, just before we begin, I apologise if you're hearing a particularly nasal brand of Glaswegian today. Um, I am in the process of recovering from the flu and joining me today and putting his immune system on the line for the greater cause is officially, after graduating last week, Dr Malcolm Craig. Thank you very much, Mark. Battling through illness to bring all that is best in American history. Well, you know what? I wouldn't have battled through the illness if it wasn't, you know, what is generally seen as the most interesting era in American politics that we're going to be discussing today. You know, nobody... The first conversation started whenever you talk to someone about American history. Correct me if I'm wrong, but it's the Gilded Age. That silence is quite deafening. Um... So, uh, as you might have guessed, we're going to look at the Gilded Age, which is generally the period... Well, we, we, there's kind of debate amongst historians when it last. I mean, I'm going to say 1873 to... Uh, I'm going to say maybe 1896. Do you want to disagree with that definition of the era, Malcolm? No, I think uh, 1873 is actually a good starting point. I mean, Richard Schneerov, the historian, argues there's strong, strong, very strong reasons for making 1873 the kind of critical year. Some people say it's nearer 1877, with the you know the complete end of Reconstruction, the post Civil War attempt to change Southern society. But I think as 1873 is the start of a five year economic depression and kind of changes in American society get rolling, I think it's as good a point to start at as any. Yeah, and I would also argue that, I mean, I think Reconstruction is pretty much done for by 1873-74 anyway, but we'll get into that um, a wee bit more. But, you know, American history, Malcolm, as you're well aware, seems to go through a variety of these ages or periods, you know, the era of good feelings, the early republic, the antebellum period. Um, you know, they all are relatively self-explanatory, eh? But could you tell us what the term the Gilded Age is and where the name comes from? Well, the, the name comes from a 1973 novel written primarily by Mark Twain, but co-written. It was the only novel that Mark Twain co-wrote uh, with a chap called Charles Dudley Warner. And it's essentially a satire of corruption, greed, land speculation, all that kind of thing. And Twain's name for the book, The Gilded Age, A Tale of Today... Uh, was satirising these changes that are happening in American society and came to be applied to the entire era that follows. Twain is writing right at the very start, 1873, the start of the so-called Gilded Age. And the name itself refers to, you know, the, the gold leaf, the gilt over something that outwardly looks very flashy and, you know, very substantial, but underneath everything is rotten and corrupt. Uh, so it's gilt over corruption. Uh, that's guilt, G-I-L-T, not G-U-I-L-T, <laughs> which is actually quite important to the Gilded yeah, Age that, that, Yeah, that, 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 that's quite clever. Quite clever. I mean, who knew Mark Twain had such a way with words? That wasn't something I associated with him. So, but following on from that, Mark, uh, you and I are kind of resident domestic politics expert. Let's give the context of all to you this time. What's been going on in the United States domestically since the end of the Civil War in 1865? Cool, yeah. Well, so before we get on to the 1873, which we talked about as a start, I think we need to name-check the 1868 election, and I mean literally name-check it. This is an election between a guy called Ulysses versus a guy called Horatio. Now, there quite frankly aren't enough Ulysses and Horatio still kicking about American politics, and if there were, I would vote for them. Um, 
But basically, what happens there, you know, Ulysses S. Grant, the the great general, or the or the butcher, considering how you want to see him, uh, wins, um, and this kind of validates radical Reconstruction as put together by the Republicans. Now, for those of you that don't know what Reconstruction is, uh, well, that's a tricky topic and would probably require an entirely new podcast. Reconstruction, for some, is just basically putting the Union back together. Um, which happens when Georgia becomes the last state to be to reconfirm to the Union in 1870. But for radical Republicans, guys like Thaddeus Stevens, Charles uh, Sumner, these guys, Reconstruction um, is all about overhauling the Southern way of life to an accept, like trying to put blacks and whites on an equal footing, giving African Americans suffrage, giving them uh, proper education, giving them. Uh, like full rights in society um, but for a variety of reasons which we don't have time to go into radical reconstruction begins to fail quite quickly sorry you want to jump in yeah no i was just going to ask you so reconstruction is encapsulated an attempt by northern politicians mm. effectively to to completely rebuild southern society from the ground up is that, that, is that, that that's the radical reconstruction. Yes, yeah. uh, I mean there's three different stages, but yeah, I I would say that's what it is because you're you're ness- you're trying to force this on a reluctant people. And don't get me wrong, I'm very much on the radical Republican side on this, you know. But in, in essence, you're trying to you're trying to force a new way of life upon the South, which has very much had this two tiered society between the races. But so if we jump forward to the Depression of eighteen seven, that begins with uh, in eighteen seventy three. Uh, and this is uh, like before we have before nineteen twenty nine comes along and steals everybody's thunder. This is perhaps what was the old Great Depression. Um, and the thing I find particularly interesting about this is it's actually triggered partly because of a, because of a crisis um, in the spring in Vienna. I mean, this is a time when Vienna and Austria are still important. Um, but th- this kind of means that politics. Politics around about this time is dominated by this battle over hard and soft money, um, which is a really tedious battle that separate that, that, that causes a lot of divides between Democrats and Republicans, um, basically about controlling the flow of money. People who want greenbacks, which were issued during the, the Civil War, to still count as legal tender. And though they're kind of the soft money people and the hard money people who want America to run to return to the gold standard, and they're generally people like northeastern bankers who don't want inflation eh, for various reasons. Um, but basically, what happens? The depression that is kicked off in eighteen seventy three has three eh, kicks off three changes. First of all, politically, it results in the Democrats resurging. Um, eh, Kicks off the end of Reconstruction as we know it, and it kind of change. It kind of brings forward the new character of American politics. It starts to move away from the Civil War being the the predominant feature of politics. You know, Republicans aren't voted in in the North purely because they were the party of the Civil War. Can I also ask you there? I think we probably need to make clear to our listeners when you're talking about Democrats and Republicans in this context. These aren't Democrats and Republicans with the attitudes and the policies and ideas that we know today. In the America of 2014. There are slight differences between Democrats in this period and Democrats now and Republicans in this period and Republicans now. I think slight differences would, uh, <laughs> would, would be the minimum. Um, yeah, that, 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 this is quite a hard thing to quantify. At this time, 
Uh, after the Civil War, basically the Democrats secure... The end of Reconstruction means that the Democrats secure the South. Um, at least and it becomes known as the Solid South. And it, became, it remains the Solid South until the 1950s, 1960s, when the Civil Rights Movement returns. Um, and Republicans are seen as a, as, a, as a party of Abraham Lincoln um, by Southerners and therefore hated for it. I mean, that's a very basic interpretation of it. But for African Americans, African Americans, the Republicans are the party of Lincoln, the party of emancipation. Exactly. So African Americans, almost at least those ones that are allowed to vote in the North, a very small number, uh, vote for vote for Republicans. And Republicans are generally seen kind of as the party of big business at this time. But Democrats aren't aren't in any way sort of the sort of liberal Democrats you would think of today. You know that they are. The Democrats, if anything, are the more regressive party at this time, the more conservative party. Um, and they obviously are, are kind of guided by the, the influence of these Southern Democrats who are constantly elected um, during this era and therefore gain seniority in the party. Um, I mean, the, the other aspect of what happens with the Depression is you have an economic uh, switch happens. You, as you're beginning to move away from this producerist economy whereby you know you make things because because you need them um, and you know that wealth is slightly more spread out in favor of a, of a concentration policy i.e concentrating wealth um, and the rise of big business and finally the depression also hardens class lines i mean we don't often think of class in america um, but you start to see a lot of general strikes you see the riots you have the tonkins riots in 1874 and these are things we're going to discuss later in the podcast so yeah, I mean, from 1874 onwards, you basically have this era of very close political competition. No, no party is in the ascendancy until the kind of 1890s when there's another realignment that's triggered then. So I mean, you have a, you have a lot of kind of cut and thrust of politics. But basically the government's attitude during this time is very, can be defined by the, the idea of laissez-faire towards business. This is the era of the rise of big business, rampant industrialization. Uh, occurs in the generation after the Civil War. The US becomes the world's biggest economy. Um, as well as government help, there's a creation of a legal environment that was almost entirely friendly to industry. And I mean, the 14th Amendment is use, used to bestow personhood upon corporations. So when Mitt, Mitt Romney said corporations are people, my friend, he wasn't the first. Um, and America is basically, its business is moving away from the kind of old, kind of family-run, you pass it on to your son model that's still going on in Britain and other countries towards managerial capitalism, towards having boards that are interested in pleasing shareholders. And this is really important. It's a very basic thing, but it's one of the reasons America strides ahead of uh, Britain in this regard. Um, you also have, of course, the era of Jim Crow um, begins in the South and will, will run until the 1960s where legal segregation um, is occurring there as federal troops leave the South officially um, following the 1877 compromise that we'll discuss later. And it's also a time when you have kind of these new political movements and ideas kicking about. Like, I mean, populism begins to rise sort of towards the 1890s. You have the silver movement. But it may, if, if I had to kind of sum up what's going on here, it is very much, you know, not much is happening in terms of substantive domestic policy. I mean, the biggest thing that happens is civil service reform, and really, how interesting can that be? So, firing things right back at you as our foreign policy type, what has the US been doing in the world since we last spoke? 
Well, I think one of the, the key things, and this connects into what you've been talking about in terms of the domestic business environment, is free trade. And there's influential figures in government, and notably one of the figures you could name is James Blaine, who was Secretary of State in 1881, and then again from 1889 to 1893, who still feared British global dominance. So the US becomes a very strong advocate of free trade, as it always really has been. If you look back to the War of 1812, free trade and sailors' rights was the slogan then, and it's almost still the same slogan when you get to the Gilded mm -hmm. Age. So the likes of Blaine are hoping that trade and free trade reduces British influence and increase American prosperity. Now there was a particular focus on South America and the Pacific area. Uh, now in the case of South America, this had been important to the United States since the Monroe Doctrine was promulgated in the 1820s. Uh, so it's always been considered since at least the 1820s America's backyard. Uh, so by the end of the 19th century, the US is deeply involved also in the Pacific, in Hawaii, and becomes de facto ruler of the archipelago, and also has embarked on a massive naval construction program. Now much of this comes out of the theorising of a chap called Alfred Thayer Mahan, and Mahan is one of the most influential uh, political military theorists uh, of the age, and he argues that sea power is the basis of great power. Uh, now he uses the British Empire as his prime example. I was going to say, is that the first time that's argued? That seems like something people would have argued a lot by this point, you know. Mahan kind of encapsulates the you know the argument, and he really gives it gives it form by saying, "Look, in the modern world, sea power is what gives you power." Because he's looking to the British Empire, which you know is a naval power essentially. Mm -hmm. So Mahan's very influential. He's thinking he's influential around the world. Uh, so by the end of the period, the United States is a major player on the world stage, even though they still can't quite compete with British naval supremacy, despite a massive naval construction programme. And then finally, at the very end of the period we're looking at, in 1898, the US fights a very, very short, but entirely successful war with Spain over Cuba. Uh, and the US drives the last remnants of the Spanish Empire out of Cuba, and also takes over the Philippines, which was also a Spanish possession, and this leads to a protracted and fairly brutal conflict with the uh, pro-Philippine ind independence fighters uh, that goes on in the Philippines. Uh, and all sorts of stuff happens out of that. So that's the kind of... I mean, of course, the Cuban question is finished forever and ever. Yes, never Cuba, Cuba never comes back to haunt the United States. And I think it's also important to emphasise, this is also a time, and I won't dwell too much upon this, when there's kind of a lot of popular ide ideologies, and this connects to changes in politics that you were talking about. A lot of popular ideologies in America and in Europe are emphasising conflict and hierarchy, conflict between races, classes, all that kind of social Darwinism comes into being here from people like uh, Herbert Spencer. Uh, many people see the world through quite a racist lens. Uh, let's not you know, split hairs about it with white people at the top and everyone else uh, below them. And we also see the rise of communism and social, socialism, you know, the former really emphasising uh, class conflict. I won't dwell too much on that. Uh, you'll find a link on our webpage to a very good uh, episode of the In Our Time podcast on the BBC, which talks about social Darwinism and gives a lot more background to this issue in this period uh, than we're able to do. And I'd recommend people have a listen to that as well. That's great, Malcolm. So, I mean, so that's kind of, we've covered the background quite extensively to what we're looking at. So I'd like to turn back a little and look at some of the major themes of the of the Gilded Age, kind of bring it to life a wee bit more. 
I mean, in particular, political corruption and the rapidly expanding American economy, economy and the rise of biz- big business. Well, perhaps I think uh, you're the best person to guide us through this kind of domestic political corruption. What I mean, are you implying? <laughs> uh, there's something. There's so much going on in this period. Uh, probably best to look at a small handful of examples. I mean, for instance, the one that immediately springs to mind is who on earth is Boss Tweed, and why is someone called Boss Tweed important? He made really nice jackets. Oh, very good. No. <laughs> um, so Bob Boss Tweed, uh, I mean, I should go back before I tell you Boss Tweed does, tell you to Tam, what Tammany Hall is. So, I mean, Tammany Hall uh, is a kind of key democratic machine in, in a, and by democratic, I mean democratic party machine in New York. It's kind of the most famously corrupt of all political machines and that kind of takes some doing. Uh, it exists for a long time. I mean, it's still kick, it's kicking about in the twentieth century for a while. Sorry. And just but when you say when you're talking about political machine in this era, you're yeah. talking about a party organisation. Yeah, yeah. I mean, like then no, no, I'll go into kind of talk about that a wee bit. And you have Republican ones as well, but Democratic ones are probably the most kind of famous because they exist in the big cities where they're most effective, um, which are kind of Democratic strongholds. I mean, Teddy Roosevelt and Franklin Roosevelt actually begin their career in politics by flouting their respective. Uh, uh, New York machine leaders at the time. Uh, Harry Truman was famously kind of came through the, the Prendergast machine in Missouri, which was, was, you know, did some pretty nasty things. These aren't people that you mess with generally. And he his reputation suffered for a long time because he, you know, he'd kind of played the game and came through there. I mean, they generally operate through patronage, i.e. you get a job if you go along with the machine rather than if you're good at the job. Uh, they work in bribes, ballot box stuffing, and intimidation of those who oppose. So I mean, they're they're generally all all encompassing if you live in that area. When it comes to elections, you know, they gain support of like kind of immigrant and poor white communities, and generally make sure that these p- people are looked after, and hence they have a base of support. It's not like everybody hates them. You know that there are people that rely on these machines, and they do good things, just uh, in rather corrupt ways. So into this is William Tweed, as you know, mentioned, known as Boss Tweed. And he kind of leads Tammany Hall from roughly 1863 in the midst of the Civil War to 1872. And if I had to coin him, he's probably the most famously corrupt man to lead the most famously corrupt machine. Um, so yet another one. He's the son of a chairmaker, uh, and his roots go back to, to Scotland, actually. Um, so that's another one, another proud one we can put along with Alexander, James Alexander Bell. <laughs> Good old <laughs> Scottish diaspora. Yeah. And, I mean, he, if we link him back to our last podcast, he walks the streets during the New York draft riots, or Jim Cam, and actually presents the compromise that New York comes up with between Democrats and Republicans to Lincoln's War Committee, which is accepted. So, you know, for this, he gains a lot of acceptance amongst people who might otherwise oppose him. And he gets things done. I mean, if you ever go to New York and you see the Brooklyn Bridge, you know, Tweed was one of the initial driving forces behind that. Um, I mean... According to testimony he gave later after he was caught, you know, he facilitated up to $65,000 in bribes. And, you know, this is back then money, not now money, um, uh, to like New York officials so that they would get through the bond issue, which would fund the bridge. Um, and then he became a major stockholder and stuff of the, of the bridge's finances. Um, so, I mean, Tweed, Tweed is effective with what he does and he, he get, puts through a lot of large public works in New York. Um, and it's estimated during his time that he stole between $1 billion and $4 billion in today's money uh, from New York's uh, coffers. 
And at one point, he becomes so brazen about it that he wears a big ten and a half carat diamond, like kind of thing in the middle of his chest, like while he's walking around, uh, which is something cartoonists enjoy, which I'll come to in a second. So can I can I stop you? Does that also imply not only his his corruption and his wealth, but the fact that he can wear that around the streets of New York implies a certain degree of immunity. That he can parade this this wealth without, without any yeah. fear. People, I'm glad you actually said that because he's part of the reason the, the machine is so successful this time is the the elites who would normally oppose this are happy with what they're doing. You know, they are you know because they're generally getting kickbacks as well, and also um, you know the, the machine is bringing order. Um, you know, it's keeping keeping their you know the, their followers, the kind of their this seen as the rowdy immigrant communities, you know, in check. And that kind of what is leads to Tweed's downfall. In 1971, there's a there's a riot between Irish Catholics and Protestants in New York. 67 die. It's the second riot. Um, there was one the previous year. And so the elites begin to turn against Tweed. And this kind of forges the career of Samuel Tilden, a Democrat who will become New York governor in 1875. And then he will run in the disputed election with Rutherford Hayes, which we're going to talk about in 1876. And also your favourite cartoonist from the... Reconstruction era, Thomas, Thomas Nast. Nast. And Tweed was his favourite target. Um, you know, he loved to poke fun at him. Nast, even, Nast was the guy who created the Republican elephant, the Democratic donkey, and also the image of Santa Claus. Yes, and uh, also one of, I recall the, the cartoon he did, one of the many cartoons he did of Tweed, and it's this uh, enormously rotund man, instead of a head, it's just a sack with a dollar sign yeah. uh, on it as, as Boss Tweed. Yeah, and I mean, it, and the one part of Thomas Nast that's relatively forgotten, however, is that he was a virulently anti-Catholic cartoonist. Um, so, I mean, he was not perfect himself, and then he often made up lies about Tweed, actually, while he was trying to bring him down. But anyway, um, so Tweed, Tweed's arrested. He then escapes, like, abroad. He goes to numerous countries, but is caught again and brought back. And he's told, look, if you admit everything, then we'll let you out. So he goes up, and he admits... And the test testimony is there, he admits to all of his corruption, um, you know, like all of the deals he did. And then the authorities go, you know, Tilden at this point is probably starting to think, I want to run for president, or, you know, he's higher up. And they're like, well, we're not going to see this deal through. And uh, Tweed eventually dies in jail um, in 1878. He's a very ill and broken man. And Tweed's just one example of this wider corruption, wider uh, kind of culture, political corruption that existed in the post-war civil era of corruption, basically. Right. So, Tweed disappears. He actually disappears very early on in the Gilded Age, before Mark Twain even coins the term Gilded Age in his novel. But this idea of the kind of machine politics seems to set the tone for the next couple of decades. So what about further up the political tree? For example, the presidency. Because, you know, the 1876 presidential election is often cited as one of the most controversial in history. And I think we'll come back to Tilden here. So why is it controversial? How is Tilden involved? Yeah, so I mean, this is the one where, yeah, the historian, famous historian C. Van Woodward coins the phrase the Compromise of 1877 um, to talk about this election in the 1950s. So this is an exceptionally close election between Samuel Tilden and Rutherford B. Hayes, the Republican Tilden's the Democrat con uh, candidate. Um, the closest reference point we maybe have in the 20th, 21st century is to look at the presidential election of 2000 between Bush and Gore, which dragged on into the courts. Well, this one drags on all the way uh, well into 1877. Uh, just in, I mean, they, they eventually sort out that Hayes is president. Uh, 
just before inauguration, which was in March in the 19th century. And so this basically, the the South by this point has rejected, has kind of overthrown most of Reconstruction. The only Republican strongholds left are New Orleans and Louisiana and Columbia and South Carolina, where federal troops are still enforcing, uh, are still enforcing Reconstruction. Um, and basically what is said to have happened is that so the Southern Democrats went to Hayes' people, Hayes people and said, look, we will give you the votes of, of three Southern states, Florida, Louisiana, and South Carolina, and therefore make you president. If you take troops out of the South, if you give a federal subsidy for a railroad, and if you appoint certain people to the cabinet that, uh, that they wanted. Now, there's a lot of people that deny this deal ever happened, but undoubtedly they met. And what happens is Hayes, who was actually a pretty progressive guy, he was a radical Republican back in the day, uh, he receives assurances from the South that they won't overthrow uh, Reconstruction, but he pulls the troops out and what happens? So, does the bargain reached in 1877, does this effectively mean that the federal government has given up on changing society in the South and has effectively handed over to the power to these so-called redeemers who want to kind of you know bring back the idea of the old South and ensure that African Americans are really firmly kept as you know not even the status of second-class citizens. Yeah, well, sadly, effectively, yes. Uh, I mean, the, the, that's the short answer. I mean, uh, obviously, as you know, most people will know, Jim Crow law has become uh, the the established basically Southern apartheid is established until the the mid twentieth century when the civil rights movement. And finally begins to have some successes. And you also have at this point, and this is very crucial uh, that happens here, is you have northern ambivalence towards what's going on to, to, to southern African Americans. And well, the one thing that Reconstruction always needed was the northern voter to cont continually vote in favour of it. Um, but northerners now start voting for Democrats as well as Republicans. And you know, the, the politician that seemed to be too concerned with, with Southern Reconstruction is one that's likely to get kicked out of office soon. And even the North begins to embrace segregation policies. I mean, while you have de jure segregation in the South, which is the laws um, that are segregating the races are put on the books, in Northern towns and cities, you have de facto segregation from here on for, forward. You know, you have jobs which African-Americans can't apply for. You have housing areas and neighborhoods that they can't apply to. And you also have Northern violence against black, uh, black Americans. Uh, you know, it's not just uh, Southern lynchings. So I get the sense from all of the stuff that you've said that the Gilded Age seems to be really riddled with corruption, deceit, shady backroom deals, all that kind of thing. It well deserves its name. Yeah, Mark Twain did a good job. Um, you know, I mean, at this point, as my throat is beginning to give up, I, I, would, I would like to ask you a few questions about the economy. Um, I mean, remember that I said earlier that the legal system in the US was almost entirely friendly to industrialization and to business. Well, could you expand on that a wee bit for the listeners? Yeah, of course. Well, I mean, during the Gilded Age, and this is especially true as we near the kind of the end of the 19th century, the ordinary worker in the factory or mill or whatever, has few, if any, rights under the law. 
Okay, there are no rights to minimum wages, there are no rights to decent working conditions and you know, various other things, complete lack of workers' rights. In fact, workers are very frequently powerless in the face of these new emerging giant corporations and companies frequently use extreme violence against their workforce and little, if anything, is done about it by the authorities. So, can we go back Go back a minute? I mean, these new giant corporations, I mean, where did they come from and who is creating them? Well, the, the most kind of prominent examples of this are, you know, a handful of men who become very, very famous and very wealthy because of the rampant, unchecked capitalism and business consolidation of the age. You know, the likes of Andrew Carnegie, Cornelius Vanderbilt, John D. Rockefeller. No, uh, no, no, but wait a minute. These are charitable men. I mean, well, they're not great philanthropists. You sound well, like you're speaking about them in negative terms. Car- Come on, Car- have you ever been to Carnegie Hall? Carnegie does become mm-hmm. a great philanthropist, but uh, uh, some people would cite Carnegie as uh, a murderer, uh, given that he allows people to kill his workers uh, on certain occasions uh, when they're trying to protest for greater workers' rights. Let's move on for a moment, though. Uh, so, for example, you have John D. Rockefeller creates the Standard Oil Company. Carnegie uh, creates U.S. Steel. And what they do is they create these giant corporations, trusts, as they're known, through vertical and horizontal integration. So that is, they buy up all the companies that make a certain thing, and all the companies that make the things you need to make that thing, and then they also own the companies that sell the final products. So they're buying all the things you need to make, to make something, they're buying the sales outlets, they own everything in this entire manufacturing and sales process. And they also you know, engage in hyper-aggressive business practices, the setting up of cartels, uh, they manage to totally control certain industries, uh, oil and steel, US steel and standard oil being two notable examples. So this is basically a type of great wealth and luxury for a few, but, well, misery for many. Well, I mean, yes. I mean, one of the reasons why corporations can be so casual and callous in their treatment of workers is at this time, it's important we must emphasise, this is a time of mass immigration to the United States. Hundreds of thousands of people are arriving uh, in US cities uh, primarily on the eastern seaboard every single year. So by the Gilded Age, many of these immigrants are coming from southern and eastern Europe, Italy, Poland, the Baltic states and so forth. So this gives a massive and ever-expanding yeah. pool of labour. And, and, and basically means there's no reason for companies to actually bother improving their conditions. Well, it's one of the contributing reasons for this. I mean, there's also the need to keep costs down, maximise profits and so forth. These trusts and trust is really just the period term for a giant mega corporation. <laughs> the the continent spanning enterprises with a huge amount of financial and political weight, and you know tying back into the political corruption, the machine politics that you talked about earlier, the trusts use their financial muscle to bend the legal and political system to their advantage. Yeah, but I mean, like ordinary people don't simply put up with all of this. I mean, I mean, should we definitely assume that the workers of America are, are so passive in the face of this corporate power? I mean, there are quite a number of cases of industrial action, are there not? Well, I mean, yes, and some of these end particularly violently. Uh, strike breakers are brought in. Sometimes striking workers are gunned down uh, by... Oh, yeah, they, they like to shoot the workers yeah, in this era, don't private they? Private detectives I mean, yeah. and private armies are brought in. Private security too take violent action against workers. But there was one case in particular that's fascinated me for a long time. When I was much younger, 
I saw this film on late night television starring Richard Harris and Sean Connery. I'm not entirely <laughs> sure of the casting of this film, but... Okay. And it was called The Molly Maguires. And it's a fictionalised account of a real-life group of Irish immigrant miners in very early Gilded Age Pennsylvania who used violent methods to protest against appalling working conditions. And if you want to see really bad Gilded Age working conditions, look at the coal mines of Pennsylvania, because mm-hmm. the conditions are absolutely awful. It's almost like... It's a situation in some ways similar to indentured servitude okay. that we talked about in our very, uh, our very first uh, podcast. So now the film aside, historians can never seem to agree on the actual extent and significance of this organisation called the Molly Maguires. Uh, the case allows us to think though about how the companies use strike breakers, intimidation and infiltration of workers' communities by private detectives to bring down any form of organised resistance. So, I mean, the story goes that the Mollies are alleged to have been complicit in the killing of 16 men, many of whom worked for the mining companies. And because of this, 20 men, 20 miners, are executed by hanging, and a further 20 receive long prison terms. Uh, Now, according to the historian Kevin Kenny, these effects captured the attention of the American public at the time, and were quite a kind of uh, cause celebre. And the interesting thing uh, that comes out of both the actual case of the Molly Maguires and the film itself, the film centres around Richard Harris's character, who's a private detective, I think working for the Pinkerton Detective Agency, who infiltrates this mining community and, community and brings them down from the inside. And although it's a fictionalised account, this is the kind of thing you see throughout the Gilded Age, is not only overt violent action by the companies against strikers and those campaigning for better conditions, but covert action within workers' communities and workers' organisations. No, that's really interesting. And also talking of great names earlier, Kevin Kenny. You know, that's a wonderful two first name name. Um, but, I mean, you're painting a really kind of mean, horrible picture of the Gilded Age here. I mean, tell me it's not all bad. I mean, I mean, it's... It, it was, it was a time of great inventiveness, wasn't it? I mean, like, innovations of technology coming to the fore. You had great businessmen and inventors such as George Westinghouse. I mean, he's a typewriter, wasn't it? Uh, Thomas Edison, of course. Nikola Tesla. And radically reinventing the modern world. You know, inventing the world we are going to come to live in. I mean, however, that's probably a story for another podcast, or maybe you want to jump in. I, 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 would, I, I would agree. I have very strong opinions on Edison. Tell me them. Very, very briefly... Edison, I think, was a great, he was a magpie. He saw the shiny stuff that other people were doing and managed to patent it, and he got the glory for it. Edison, many people before Edison, had already laid the groundwork and invented the light bulb. Edison did not invent the light bulb, despite what popular history might tell you. But Edison managed to market the light bulb. That's what Edison managed to do. He got the patents and he managed to market the light bulb. Most of Edison's great ideas actually down to a Serbian immigrant called Nikola Tesla. And if you want the man who actually invented the modern world we live in, I could talk for ages about Nikola Tesla. And he's far (laughs) more interesting than Thomas Edison, who was a bit of an avaricious, gilded age stereotype in many ways. However, that... Yeah, I'm slightly suspicious. I mean, you're a well-known hipster around here. Like, you know, this this is you rejecting a mainstream interpretation in favour of the kind of more hip Eastern Europe type type of angle there. Uh, 
my opinions of medicine and Tesla aside, one thing I think is really important to this is a time of great inventiveness and change. And things like transport, just to give one example, are changing radically. 1869, the Transcontinental Railroad is completed. There is now a railway all the way across America. And during the Gilded Age, the railways in the United States expand massively. So you have a huge expansion in... Coupled with the closing of the frontier as well. Yep. By, I think, 1900, there's now one and a half million people living in California. Mm. So there's no, it's no longer really the frontier. The West is now closed. And America now has to look elsewhere. But railways, communication, all that kind of thing are changing radically and expanding massively. Let's kind of wrap this up around here. I mean, uh, I mean, our next podcast, we're going to kind of do a bonus one over Christmas where you get to chat about, you know, a nuclear fallout just to keep everybody happy for before Christmas. Um, but the, the podcast after that, we're going to be looking at Teddy Roosevelt. And Teddy Roosevelt, is he not, is very much a product of coming out of the Gilded Age. He's going to be known as the trust buster, whether he deserves that reputation or not. You've just discussed the frontier closing. What does Teddy Roosevelt think about a frontier closing? Maybe we should go abroad and find another frontier to conquer. Mm. Um, and he's also going to deal with these, have to deal with these workers um, who have all these grievances built up from the economic system that is, is built through this time. And that's where we begin to see the kind of progressivism that comes out, you know, which Roosevelt becomes a tribune of. And as I was going to say, that leads us into the next named era of American history, the so-called progressive era. Yes. And with that, perhaps we should say ta-da. So, goodbye from me. And it's goodbye from me as well. Cheerio. Mother's Day is almost here, and you can get her the most beautiful time-tested gift around. A watch she can wear every day for movement. Whether mom's into classic dress watches, rare and refined ceramics, or tried-and-true bestsellers, Movement has something she'll love. And right now you can save big on the best Mother's Day gift ever with up to 50% off site-wide during Movement's Mother's Day sale at MVMT.com. Again, that's up to 50% off at MVMT.com.